Some wars are waged with guns, tanks, and bombs, and they are ferocious and bloody wars of nation against nation. They leave us with images of devastation. Yet many others are bloodless wars waged against truth with the weapons of destructive ideas, philosophies, and doctrines. And though these more civilized and bloodless ideological wars against the truth often appear nonviolent, they are most dreadful and ferocious because the aggression is against God and casualties suffer God's terrifying wrath. We've seen images of decimated cities in ruin, emaciated, mutilated, and lifeless bodies scattered on the ground, war-torn mourners weeping over fallen loved ones. The sight of war distresses us. And yet, ideas which subtly, sometimes very subtly, rally people in war against God are often, if we're honest, much less distressing for us. TV commercials selling materialism hit us a little bit differently than World War II documentaries. Our response to ideological war against God is often less shocking. My friends, ideas have eternal consequences. War is awful, whether between nations or neighbors or family members, and we should promote peace. We should strive to make peace in the world and yet to promote peace without promoting peace with God is incomplete. Can it be true peacemaking if it promotes war against God? Some of the greatest peacemakers of, of history in terms of worldly peacemaking have persuasively promoted war against God. Many peacemakers have been applauded by the world in their efforts to make peace on earth, and yet with deceptive philosophy, they have promoted war against God. Is this really peacemaking? At the same time, the greatest peacemakers of history by God's standards, peacemakers who have championed the gospel of peace in efforts to help mankind find peace with God and each other, have been vilified as divisive, disruptive, contentious, intolerant, dangerous, and even hateful, how skewed the world's perspective on peace really is. Mohandas Mahatma Gandhi was a remarkable man. He's lauded as one of the greatest peacemakers of history. Gandhi was Time Magazine's Man of the Year in 1930 and runner-up to Albert Einstein as the person of the century in 1999. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. sometimes referred to Gandhi as the little brown saint. Albert Einstein called him a role model for the generations to come. Indians widely describe Gandhi as the father of the nation. For many, Gandhi's life is synonymous with peacemaking. In 1926, Gandhi, he wrote a letter to an American Christian named Milton Newberry Franz. Uh, the letter sold last year for $50,000. It's interesting. Listen very carefully to what Gandhi wrote to this Christian. Dear friend, I have your letter. I am afraid it is not possible for me to subscribe to the creed you have sent me. The subscriber is made to believe that the highest manifestation of the unseen reality was Jesus Christ. In spite of all my efforts, I have not been able to feel the truth of that statement. I have not been able to move beyond the belief that Jesus was one of the great teachers of mankind. 
Do you not think that religious unity is to be had not by a mechanical subscription to a common creed, but by all respecting the creed of each? In my opinion, difference in creed there must be so long as there are different brains. But what does it matter if all these are hung upon the common thread of love and mutual esteem? Folks, that thought is satanic. It rejects Jesus Christ as God in human flesh. It recognizes Jesus as a good teacher, but rejects him as crucified and risen Savior and Lord. That idea leads people away from true unity found in Christ alone and leads people to instead find counterfeit unity in friendly relativism and pluralism. Gandhi's view ultimately concludes that truth and doctrinal unity found in the gospel of Christ is irrelevant as long as people love and respect each other. Now, Gandhi did promote peace to a certain extent, but his philosophy, his theology, his ideology encouraged people in their war against God. Is it full-bodied peacemaking if it encourages people to oppose God? Only peace with God found in the gospel of peace leads to true lasting peace. Strip peacemaking of the gospel of peace, and there is no true peace, only perpetual war against God. When Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, he did not have an ambiguous earthly peacemaking in mind, but rather a peacemaking inseparable from God's law and gospel. The seventh beatitude assumes the gospel which begins with peace with God. There are not a few professing Christians and denominations who place great emphasis on peacemaking but are unclear about the gospel, where true peace is found. In fact, many professing Christians and denominations today downplay, omit, or outright reject the idea of God's righteous wrath against sinners and therein They devalue the urgent need of peace with God, which leads to a misunderstanding of gospel-centered peacemaking. So they inevitably get peacemaking wrong. Haven't we seen this in liberal, social, gospel-oriented churches? We will get peacemaking wrong when we get God's law and gospel wrong. This gospel of peace. Keep in mind... The seventh beatitude does not come to us alone. It is preceded by six other complementary beatitudes essential to Christianity and true happiness. True peacemakers are poor in spirit. They realize their spiritual poverty and desperate need of peace with God, and they receive the kingdom of heaven by grace through faith, and they are happy. They mourn their sin and war against God and receive comfort in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they are happy. True peacemakers are meek and humble and desperate to receive good things from God, and the earth is theirs, and they are happy. They hunger and thirst for righteousness and are happily satisfied, not in their own efforts of righteousness or peacemaking, but in receiving the righteousness and peace of Christ by grace through faith. True peacemakers are merciful. 
because they first receive God's mercy in Christ and are assured by the Spirit that they will continue to receive God's mercy in Christ, and that makes them happy. They are pure in heart, and their greatest hope is to see God who is their happiness. True peacemakers realize their true identity as sons of God, and being such makes them happy peacemakers. As much as Gandhi may have displayed the Beatitudes by worldly estimation, in reality, he displayed none of them because of his aggressive and unyielding war against God's Son. As temporarily helpful as Gandhi's peacemaking efforts may have been, and we should not minimize those, Gandhi is not synonymous with peacemaking. Jesus Christ is. Our minds should not go to Gandhi or Susan B. Anthony or Nelson Mandela when Jesus Christ is the preeminent peacemaker. We must look to Christ to see what peacemaking is. And without Christ, we do not know true peace and how to make peace. Without Christ, we will simply define peacemaking however we want it to be. Defined according to our own definitions, according to our own worldly and earthly standards. What is peace? Peace may conjure up images of nations getting along, but it's deeper. Peace is well-being, wholeness, freedom from danger, tranquility, even contentedness in having basic needs met. And I think for our purposes today, peace perhaps is best understood as relational harmony. Relational harmony between God and man and out of relational harmony with God comes relational harmony among men. I think of peace in two ways, internal peace and external peace. Internal peace is the inner man at peace. True peace begins in the heart. If the heart is at war with God, it will not have peace or well-being and And it will not make peace externally with others. Antagonism with God leads to antagonism with others. One study note said, quote, conflict among individuals, races, and nations comes from our alienation with God, end of quote. And that's right. If the inner man is at war with God, the inner man will be troubled. It will be conflicted. It will be apprehensive. And it will be at war with self. And it will be at war with others. Internal peace, it's it's saying, it is well with my soul. And, and, And because my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. That kind of inner peace, the it is well with my soul, anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ, motivates people to external happiness, uh, external peace with others. And then there is external peace. External peace is a product of true internal peace. Now, we want to see the nations at peace. We want to see differing ethnicities at peace. Husbands and wives and parents and children and work relationships at peace. But not peace in the mere sense of the absence of war or the presence of friendliness. But peace anchored to being at peace with God. A peace which promotes true love and affection and kindness among men for the glory of God alone. So, if we bypass 
God's law and gospel and go straight to making external peace in the world in areas like global politics, crime, war, LGBTQ plus issues, abortion, gang violence, domestic violence, racial reconciliation, poverty alleviation, broken marriages and families, etc. We are not actually making peace in the fullest and completest sense. Because true peace begins with inner peace with God and overflows in gospel-centered external peace with others. We cannot properly address sociological peace until we have addressed theological or we could say spiritual peace which moves people to sociological peace. The police are necessary. Thank you, police. Uh, uh, Soldiers are necessary. Thank you, soldiers. Family counselors are necessary. But until we address the fundamental war against God in human hearts, we are only putting a Band-Aid on the mortal wound. Paul said many times, grace to you and peace from God. Where does peace come from? It comes from God. It comes from God. There is no true peace apart from God in his sovereign grace and gospel. There is only war with God outside of the gospel. Paul also uses the phrase, God of peace. God is a God of peace. A God of peace. And he alone gives peace and makes peace. So, to bypass the gospel and to start with sociological or global peace is a huge mistake because it promotes moralism and legalism and ultimately antinomianism. We must start with the God of peace and how peace is made with him and then move to peacemaking. How is peace made? How is peace made? Folks, before we can have an honest discussion about making peace in the world, we need to talk about how peace is made with God. How is peace made with God? With that question, we have to start with God's law. Every human being is duty-bound to obey God's law perfectly. No mistakes. No missteps. Perfectly. Obey perfectly, and you receive God's favor. Break God's law at all in any way, and without Christ, you're an enemy of God. Every human being, excluding Jesus, break God's law and apart from Jesus is a lawbreaker and enemy of God. That has to be understood. Evangelical Christianity needs to be a lot clearer about this. We are not doing people a service by by not telling them the whole truth. Often evangelical Christians start with and emphasize God's love without talking about his holiness and his law and his hostility towards lawbreakers. A necessary part of the story which sets up the gospel. That's the context for the gospel. We have no need of the gospel if we don't understand the hostility that lawbreakers have with God. Psalm 5 says about God, you may not have read this verse much and it probably isn't on your coffee mugs. It says about God, you hate all evildoers, you destroy those who speak lies, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Psalm 11 says, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. God has enemies and is against them. 
James 4.4 is explicit. James wrote, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself a what? An enemy of God. Now, you've heard, possibly, in your time, preachers tell the unsaved, God is not mad at you. He's for you. And that's not true. God is mad at his enemies, and he's against them. James 4, verse 6, and 1 Peter 5, 5 both say, in clear terms, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is not for arrogant unbelievers who hate him. He is against them. God is for his children, whom he graciously adopts into his family to forever enjoy peace with him. Nahum used sobering language when he prophesied, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Saints, the love of God is not God's only attribute. An equally glorious and good attribute is God's just wrath. The Bible does say that God is love. Think about that. That's true. God is love. But let us not forget that it is equally true that God is a consuming fire. The Bible does reveal that God shows mercy, he shows grace, he shows love to his enemies through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But let us not forget that God also destroys his enemies. God has many enemies and he's against them. Paul explained to the Ephesians that before God extended his mercy and love to them in Christ and before God made them alive in Christ, they, quote, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Unbelievers are children of God's holy and righteous wrath. Only God's children, his adopted children, who are united to his precious son, Jesus, only them... Only they are at peace with God. Everyone outside of Christ is at war with God. Unless we understand this, we cannot even comprehend the gospel. We won't get it. It won't make sense. How is peace with God made? Here comes the hero. And guess what? The hero is not you and it's not me. Listen to how Paul explained the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Colossians. This is good news. This is why we rejoice For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Do you understand how peace is made with God? It is made by the preeminent peacekeeper, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. None of us make peace with God. 
Rather, Christ makes peace with God for us by offering himself in our place on the cross as our substitute payment for our sin and guilt. He bled and he died to bear the righteous indignation and justice of God for us who were his enemies, who were hostile towards him, who were alienated for him, who were hell-bent on rebelling against him in every way. It is the death of Christ the precious and perfect Savior alone, which makes peace with God. The death of Christ has reconciled us to God, dear brothers and sisters, from enemies to sons. Paul gave the gospel of peace to the Ephesians. He talked about how there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And how God united Jew and Gentile into one church. And he said of Jesus and God's unifying grace, listen carefully, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Don't you love that? Killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, that's to Gentiles, to those who were near, that's to Jews. Do you understand? Brothers and sisters, Jesus is our peace. He is our peace. The the dividing line between Jews and Gentile is gone. It doesn't exist like it once did. Christ broke it down. He has made us all one in Christ. He has made peace with God for us all, for his church, both Jew and Gentile. With his cross, he has killed, Paul says, killed the hostility that existed between God and man, and he has reconciled the church to God to enjoy peace with God. How is peace made with God? Paul taught the Roman church, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, you need to be honest. You need to hear this. There is no peace with God. There is no true peace at all outside of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not true peace. You're not going to find it. It's not there. It is not there. The gospel says that we were enemies with God, but now we have peace with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And when we have God's true and lasting peace, guess what happens? We become peacemakers. His peace in us makes us peacemakers. A proper understanding of guilt and grace lead us to the peacemaking of gratitude. Who makes peace? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ makes peace. Jesus Christ the Messiah. Jesus Christ the preeminent peacemaker. In fact, Isaiah, Isaiah calls him the prince of peace. Micah prophesied about the Messiah to Bethlehem He said this, from you, 
shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And then he told Bethlehem this, and he shall be their peace. Who makes peace? In the upper room, Jesus comforted his disciples with these glorious words, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. True peace is found in the one who overcomes the world to bring true and lasting peace to his people, for his people. Saints, the world may advocate peacemaking to a certain extent, but the world does not give peace as Jesus alone gives peace. How much peace can the world make when it is waging aggressive war against God? There is no place on earth to escape war against God. The safe place is in the person of Jesus Christ. Do we want, really think about this in global terms, do we want sociological peace for America, for Afghanistan, for Syria, for South Sudan, for Iraq, for Russia? Of course we do. Yes, we yearn for that, but we want more for that. Please listen carefully. We want the people of America, Afghanistan, Syria, South Sudan, Iraq, and Russia, and all the nations of the world to have peace with God in the person of Jesus Christ. So our primary focus, dear church, our main priority is not disarming the nations. It's not having peace talks among the nations, but taking the gospel of peace to the nations and planting churches, churches who, which clearly proclaim the gospel of peace. Peace on earth without peace in Christ is only momentary peace, which ends with God's righteous destruction of the wicked. We contend with that? Yes, disarmament is desirable. The eradication of all violence in society is desirable. But, my friends, unto what end? Saints, true external peace is motivated by true internal peace. So our starting point must be the gospel of peace, not societal peace. The order is significant and the order is essential. Let me just ask this, can the conflicts in global politics and education and family and commerce and all of society and culture really be solved without the gospel? If not, why are our tactics focused on things that aren't where the power is? It's the gospel. Peacemaking in so many people's minds does not include the gospel. That makes no sense. Strategies without the gospel are at best incomplete strategies which leave people at war with God. Will freedom reign in the Middle East, practical application, when hearts are still enslaved to Islam? Democracy will not fix that. Back to the seventh beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Why are peacemakers truly happy? Simply put, they're happy because God calls them his sons. 
Peacemakers were at one time God's enemies, but now, because of Christ, God calls them sons. This makes peacemakers supremely happy. God's marvelous gospel puts peace into the hearts of his people, and they seek to make peace in the world. In in other words, because the sons of God are happy to be at peace with God in Christ, they seek to live out the family values. They, They love peacemaking because that's what their father is about, and so that's what they seek to live out in the world. They follow their father's lead. Real quick, some translations like the NIV have children of God instead of sons of God. They gender neutralize verse 9 to be more inclusive, and that's not best. Uh, Here's why. The Greek word is huios, or son, male offspring, very clearly. There's a better word, a better Greek word for children, and Matthew did not use that word. Uh, Son is best because it's the word that Matthew used, and it builds the ancient concept of right of inheritance, which sons had. Jesus is not excluding women, but clearly including them as co-heirs with Christ. Remember, Jesus was speaking here to the covenant community of faith, his disciples, the visible church, if you will. Jesus chose the gender-specific sons of God. It was his choice in order to take our minds somewhere. Dr. John Nolan prefers this gender mark, sons of, saying this, precisely because of its connection to the privileges of sonship, In the ancient world, the coming of the kingdom of heaven means that women may be just as much sons as their male counterparts. End of quote. To be sons of God means that you are inheritors of God, the kingdom of your father, regardless of sex. That's not his point. Okay, Jesus is speaking of his church. And just in case you're sitting there and you're getting very uncomfortable with this gender-specific language and that unsettles you, consider that the church is also called Christ's bride. Men, you are just as much Christ's bride as the women are. Sons of God. We don't want to lose, lose that strong inheritance connection for the church. We, it, Paul talks a ton about inheritance, 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 and that's big. Men and women, the church, inherit the promises of God. Jesus Christ, God's son, has earned his inheritance. It's his inheritance, and brothers and sisters, he shares it. He shares it with his adopted brothers and sisters, men and women, Sons of God, who are now at peace with God the Father as he is at peace with God the Father. One of the the greatest privileges of my life is being a son of Leon and Henrietta Sharp. They're here today. And to be the brother of Valerie and Christopher Sharp. To bear the Shirk name, and that has been one of the, the, the greatest blessings of my life. I get all the blessings of being a Shirk, and there are many, many blessings of being a Shirk. The rights and privileges are passed to my children. They're brought into this, and I just want you to think about this. To be in a family is such a great blessing. And when that family is the greatest of families, God's family, it is the blessing of all blessings. There is none that surpasses this blessing. You, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, you are sons of God. 
inheritors with Christ. Imagine God saying of you, there are my sons, there are my inheritors, they're mine. God counts you, brothers and sisters, co-heirs with Christ. Don't, don't minimize that. Just delight in, in that truth. The kingdom of heaven is yours. The, all of the earth is yours. Uh, comfort and satisfaction and mercy and that beatific vision that we talked about last week, it's all yours. Why? Because God adopted you and is giving it all to you in Christ. Saints, you are no longer at war with God. You have peace in him. He is your loving father. Saints, he is your loving father. Saints, God is for you. You have peace with him in Christ. All God's lavish fatherly blessings are yours, and they're yours forever, not just today, but yours. We get them a little bit now, but then in the end, it's just all ours. You're adopted sons now. You're heirs now. Sons entitled to the happiness of the Father and the happiness of the Son and the happiness of the Spirit that they all share. That's your, you're entitled to that because of Christ. This is why you must joyfully make peace in the world. It's your motivation. God made peace in your heart. Therefore, think about this. Brothers and sisters, rage, resentment, retaliation, and revenge, they just don't fit you. They don't suit you. This is not the place for those things. Peace. If you live as a peacemaker, you will be truly happy in your identity as sons of God. If you live as a troublemaker, you're just going to be miserable. You'll be miserable, and the peacemakers will feel really compassionately bad for you. Our identity as sons of God is marked by peacemaking. If we are constantly stirring up strife in our lives, making trouble for others, rousing contention among people, then one of two things is true of us. We are either failing to reflect the family values or we are not truly part of the family. So examine yourselves. Proverbs 12 verse 20 says, Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil. But those who plan peace have joy. Peacemakers are happy because they plan peace. Are you a peace planner? Is it in your Google account? No, it doesn't have to be in your Google account. But you should be planning on peace. If so, you will be truly happy in your peacemaking and assured in that that you belong to Christ, body and soul, that you, that you are sons of God. As we think through being peacemakers, I should mention Galatians 5.22, where Paul says that peace is a fruit of the Spirit. Peace is a fruit, not grown in your life through membership in peace organizations like uh, Code Pink or the Peace Alliance or whatever, but a fruit grown in your life by the Spirit of God as a member of Christ. The Spirit makes peacemakers. Peacemakers are filled with the Spirit. Romans 8.14 says... For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Sons of God. The true peacemakers are the sons of God who are led by the Spirit of God. Peacemaking is supernatural. Someone, someone can be a part of the International Peace Bureau or Human Rights Watch or the Peace Corps and advocate peace until they are blue in the face. But until they're filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit, they're not true peacemakers. How can peacemakers make peace if they're still at war with God? 
Now, peacemaking is hard work. It's really hard and painful work. It is sometimes dangerous work. It, it's often emotionally draining, and, and, and it is demanding. It demands selflessness. It demands self uh, control it demands gentleness, it, it demands wisdom, it demands immense love and forgiveness, and it takes time to do, and it takes great focus to do. It's hiring, it's hard. Consider the greatest, think in your own mind, the greatest causes of conflict in your life. Okay, they might include your workplace or your extended family, or your spouse, or your children, or maybe someone from the community, or maybe someone from your church. Consider all of that. Who, who, who are you angry with? Who's angry with you? Who frustrates you? Who do you wish would just, just vanish and never come back? You know, make your life easier, right? Think, think of those things. And so whoever comes to mind might be the application of this message. Can you do something to make those contentious relationships peaceful? Is that on you? To just go and make peace with everybody? Well, maybe, maybe not. Peacemakers can't guarantee peace. <laughs> but they don't have to pour gas on the fire. They, they can spritz it with water instead. Paul said in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live, with, live peaceably with all. You, you can be kind, you can be gentle, you can bend over backwards almost until you snap and people will still oppose you and just be mean and wicked and nasty, not just stirring things up. But as far as it depends on you, brothers and sisters, as far as it depends on you, live to make peace with them, even your worst of enemies. And this doesn't mean that you avoid conflict. This, this doesn't mean that you never say or do what needs to be said or done. But what we say and do must have the motive of true peace, peace with God, peace with fellow man, and love. So how do we do that? How, how do we, this is, bring it down, Pastor. Well, Paul explains exactly how to do this. Romans 12, 19 through 21, this is great. He says, beloved, so we know that Paul is actually talking to peacemakers. He's talking to the church. He's talking to Christians, the true peacemakers. And, and he's saying to them, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by do so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Peacemaking is about trusting God to carry out his justice, my goodness, it's much more intense than yours, so just put it down. Let him take care of it. it. He will make it right in the end. He either made it right on the cross of Jesus Christ or he will make it right in an eternity in hell. Let God have the vengeance. It's his, not ours. And in the meantime, as we trust God to do what he says he's going to do, do much good to others and uh, as the strategy for overcoming evil. That's simple to understand, but you know what? It's not simple to do. That's the tricky part. Peacemaking is hard, but as we face it, there's hope, brothers and sisters. There's great hope because Paul said in Colossians 3.15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Our hope is that the peace of Christ will just control us and rule us and we'll be peacemakers. 
because of our union with him. So when he gives us the internal peace that we need, he's providing for us the means by which we can promote and and extend external peace with the world. Don't try to make peace without making peace with Christ. Don't try to make peace without having the peace of Christ. Paul also said, for the love of Christ controls us. As for the people of God, we are controlled by the love of God to make peace in the world. When that happens, we're we're peacemakers. Are you constantly trying to build bridges with people or are you trying to blow them up? And if you're building, ask yourself the question, why am I building? Why am I building bridges? Is it so that people will encounter God's peace in the person and work of, of Christ? Excuse me. Your species of peacemaking might help people argue less aggressively, but does it help them pursue peace with God? Think about the conflict that you have in your life. You may want to read James 3, 13 through 18. It's very helpful, and it may be at least part of the conflict in your life uh, that is caused by, might be this, your jealousy and selfish ambition. James says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Isn't it true that all violence and war and crime and social disorder can be traced right back to jealousy and selfish ambition? So maybe the conflict in your life, at least a little bit, might trace right back to the jealousy and selfish ambition inside of your heart. Study yourself. Saints, peacemaking is hard to do, but I don't think that it's hard to understand. Psalm 34, 14 makes it pretty clear. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Right there is what you do. That's what you do. You'll be miserable if you don't do that. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Be what God made you to be, brothers and sisters. Be peacemakers because you're sons of God. And when you strive to be a peacemaker because God calls you his sons, then and only then, get this, you will be truly peacemakers. 